The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. He is indeed the exalted one in, from 1 Peter chapter 1. Bless his name. He has caused us, it says in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. That faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's pray. Lord, God Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. Most of us here in this room can say in great release, in great relief, with great joy, You have caused us to be born again and You have made for us an inheritance and You preserve that inheritance for us in heaven and You keep us by Your great power for it. Bless Your name. You are highly exalted. Bless your name. And Peter calls us and and says, then in this you rejoice. He says it down a little later, though we do not see you, we love you. And though we don't see you, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and glorious. Bless Your name for what You have done for us, Father, Son, and Spirit. In the middle is a reality that though we set our hearts on this and rejoice in this, now, as You decide, it is necessary in times and places and ways for us to be grieved. In this we rejoice, even though now grieved. In this we rejoice. In what You have done for us and what You have secured for us, we rejoice how You have done it. We rejoice. We are now grieved. The grief has a purpose to bring great honor to You, to fasten us to You. But it is real and it is grievous grief. And Lord, this morning as we look at this passage in 1 Samuel, 
And we see David and we see ourselves in David looking ahead at the joy held off from it for a moment for time by something grievous and tempted to take things into our own hands. As we see David and we see ourselves, would you give us grace to enable us to rejoice even now? Eyes with hearts set on the future to rejoice even now and to not sin. To not take a shortcut and try to avoid the tribulation and the hardship, but to trust you, to rejoice in what you have done and what you have kept us to and kept for us in heaven. This requires grace from you, Lord, because it is not natural for us. What is natural for us is to grieve and to be overcome by grief and to turn into either pity or sin. To be overwhelmed and crushed, downcast and despairing, or to lash out angry. That's natural for us. And so, Lord, give us grace that we would not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Help us, please. Make these great things that are true in our lives, issues in our lives, make them clear to us from this passage from several thousand years ago. Make my words clear and give them enough order that your truth can be made clear and can come home to rest in us and can... Be used by your Spirit to stir us to follow and to rejoice. Thank you for your word, Lord. Open it now to us. Make it clear. I pray this in the name of the one by whom you have saved us, for whom you have saved us, and in whom we rejoice. Amen. turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 24, where King Saul is still after David, chasing him to kill him in order to keep control of the kingdom. That's Saul's objective, to maintain control, to keep control of the kingdom and control of his life. He has no concern for the Lord. We saw that last week in chapter 23, where Saul attempted to capture, to kill David in the city of Keilah first, and then in the wilderness of Ziph. Several times there, David was in great danger. To use the language of the passage, you'll recall, he was about to be given into the hand of Saul, or so it seemed. But it didn't happen, because the Lord who holds David and who holds all things in his hand, all of us who hold everything in his hand, decided that it would not happen, and so it didn't happen. Verse 14 said, he, the God did not give David into Saul's hand. Instead, he held him in his hand and was a strong help to him. He, he gave him wisdom and guidance when David asked, and he providentially used Philistines even. He holds them in his hands too. Providentially used Philistines even to distract Saul at just the last moment, just in the nick of time. He's that help for David as he holds him in his hand, and he's that help for you, Christian, as he holds you in his hand, and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. 
We saw that last week, and then we also saw graciously that he tells us that because it's, there's a difference there to, to be that and then to make it so that we know that he is that. There's a difference, and God does both. God both is that great help to David, and he tells David that through Jonathan, who arrives in the middle of the chapter. He makes him aware of this, makes it clear through the words of Jonathan, who came to strengthen David's hand in God. That's who he is for us, so know that and be encouraged. And we need that encouragement because Saul and the Sauls of life are relentless. Chapter 23 ended with David escaping and Saul drawn off to chase the Philistines. And that only happens for a moment. 24 begins with him right back on the trail. The hunt is on again. But there's a slight difference here. 24 in the chapters that follow. Yes, David's still on the run. Yes, Saul's still after him. But, but there's a slight difference in what we see. The emphasis in the previous chapters has been on David's life being saved. What we're going to see in the next several chapters is David saving life. Even while he's on the run, David is going to be a deliverer. He's going to spare life. This morning, Saul's. And why he does that and how it is he finds the strength inside to do that is going to be instructive for us this morning. So let me read the chapter, all of chapter 24, and I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand the chapter and its details before making a couple of our overarching observations. This is 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. See, my Lord, my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. 
For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs, proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord, that you, you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. The word of the Lord. Verse 1 ever so briefly mentions the Philistines. They were just a brief distraction until Saul can get back to the main business of his kingdom, which is tremendously ironic. The main business of his kingdom is not defending them from the nation's enemies, but in hunting down this one dead dog, this one flea, out in the middle of nowhere. And so he's after him again. And this chapter describes some events here in three different scenes. The first one, what actually happened. And then the second one, David's speech. And the third one, Saul's response. First, the, the event. Saul hears of David's whereabouts and pursues him to the area of En Gedi, which is near the Dead Sea. Chases him down there, and as the king is moving along with the army, he has to go to the bathroom. So he picks out a cave, goes into it, naturally, all by himself. And what do you know? If you're reading this for the first time, unfortunately, none of us have read this just now for the first time, but if you're reading this for the first time, your heart stops as you read. And... David and his men were hiding in the innermost parts of that very same cave. Huh. Huh. What a coincidence. Of course not. There's no such thing as coincidence. David chose his hiding place and Saul chose his bathroom, but the Lord chose to put them in the same place at the same time. David's men, verse 4, see it as a godsend. They see it as the Lord's provided opportunity. And they either quote to him something that actually was said and just isn't recorded in the Bible. What they say, the Lord said, isn't anywhere in the text of 1 Samuel. God could still have said it to them. Or perhaps they're just extrapolating what they know the big picture to be, that David's going to sit on the throne. And so this obviously is what God intends. Either way, they are urging him on. 
And so David steps up, sneaks up, and cuts off a corner of his robe. And immediately is guilty. Feels just struck in the heart, it says, that he cut off a corner of his robe. Now this, this would have been his royal robe, an outer garment, so it probably wasn't on his body. He would have likely taken that off when he does his business there in the cave. But it's near him, obviously. And he cuts off a corner of that and realizes he cannot lift his hand against the Lord's anointed because this one is still God's chosen king. Until God removes him, he is the king. And the robe is a symbol of him. The robe is representative of him. And so it's just as bad, almost, just as bad to cut off a corner of the robe. He feels guilty about that. And twice says, ah, He's the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's anointed. What have I done? And then later says it again a third time. The Lord's anointed. What have I done? He knows he cannot lift his hand against God's chosen one. So he shrinks back and the men think he is crazy. The language of verse 7 hides the, the intensity of how he had to argue with them. Some, some folks have offered to translate verse 7 as he cut them to pieces with his words. He has to say to them, get behind me. No. As they're about to rise up, they see him silhouetted against the sun with his pants down, turned, is there anything more obvious? No. And so they, they lie back. Saul gets up and walks out. Oh, what a missed opportunity. After letting a few moments pass, David steps out and calls to Saul. And what a, the whole chapter is high drama. But can you just imagine this? As it goes on, he turns and hears David's voice and looks at his, oh my goodness, a piece missing. There it is in his hand. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a dramatic setting. But David calls out to him and, and he twirls around and sees David bowed low, submissive and humble and wise, blaming Saul's pursuit on bad counsel from other people. Very tactful. They say, I seek your harm. Look, here's the proof. He's presenting a case to Saul, who is the judge of Israel. Look, here's the evidence. And as you know, does a man, when he finds his enemy, let him go? I'm not your enemy. They say, I seek your harm. Look. I saw the Lord put you in my hand. David says that. Saul says that. And I saw it as an opportunity not to kill you. Verse 11 The whole bunch of men thought I should. I saw it as an opportunity to plead my case before you and prove to you there is no treason in me, there is no evil in me, there is no sin in me. Here's the evidence. Even though you hunt me to kill me. There's a little stab in there as there is when he brings up the Lord as judge in verse 12, and then again in verse 15, the Lord judge between you and me. The Lord render a verdict between you and me. The Lord plead my case. The Lord 
execute justice. The Lord deliver me. Not me. And when he's done, Saul responds with what looks like sorrow and repentance. And there's a lesson here for us about what crocodile tears look like. It seems like something dramatic happens here. They call each other father and son. You are more righteous than I. Four times he ascribes to David good. In 17, 18, 19, four times good to you. Both you've done good and may the Lord do good to you because you've done good. You've repaid good to me while I repaid evil to you. You are more righteous. The first time that word is used in the whole book, Saul calls David righteous. We think, man, Saul is coming to Jesus. No, he's not. He's convicted, and there are a thousand men, thousands of men watching this whole scene. He plays it a certain way, but nothing changes. At the end, he goes one way, and David goes to the stronghold. And next chapter, we're back at it for several more chapters. There's a lesson to learn there. But despite what Saul's falsehood looks like, what he says is the truth. David is righteous. David has done good. He has repaid good for evil. He has seen the opportunity laid before him and recognized it for what it really was and said, no, the Lord be judge. I will do good. And that leads him to the place where Saul even affirms, I know the kingdom is yours. The Lord is going to establish it in your hands, David. You are the righteous one. I'm still going to try to kill you. You are the righteous one. It's a remarkable chapter. There are a couple of things for us to learn from it for our lives today. I'm going to make two observations from this text. The first one is this. I need to state and then probably explain a little bit. The road to the kingdom leads through tribulation and there are no shortcuts. The road to the kingdom leads through tribulation and there are no shortcuts. It's important for us that we understand this this to be the issue in the chapter because there are many things we could talk about in this chapter. The providence of God, front and center, yet again, as in every single chapter, the providence of God is what lined these two up in the same cave. And obviously there's there's a significant thread about the anointed one and how Wrong it would be to strike at the anointed one. We could elaborate on why that is. There are many things we could touch on, but the issue before us here, before David here, which shows up in the moment that he's crouched in the cave, is one of the road to kingdom and its blessing. And by kingdom, what I, what I mean as I'm talking to Christians here is that reign of God experienced. There is a place coming where the fullness of the reign of God will be experienced. There is a physical kingdom coming. The kingdom has broken in even now. The reign of God exists in in seed form even now within us, said Jesus. 
I'm talking about that kingdom that is pictured here in David's literal pursuit of a literal throne, the kingdom of Israel, the throne of Israel. It's pictured for us here. David's looking at the road to the kingdom. So put yourself there and and realize he's looking at a road and tempted with a shortcut. And there isn't a legitimate shortcut. That's the main issue. He crouches there in that quiet moment in the cave and a voice whispers in his ear, Has not the Lord said, I will give your enemy into your hand? This is the moment. He hears the whisper and he sees Saul silhouetted against the light. Your David, ragged, frightened, harried, hungry David sees the end of the years of being hunted. Can you feel that? He sees the end of the uncertainty and the danger and the tribulation. The the end is right there. And 600 men behind me are pushing me forward towards it. And there's the throne. And there's the kingdom. And all of the blessings, all of the comforts, and the rest, and the joy, and the power, and the privilege, all of which is good and right and has been promised to me. It's appropriate. I should have that throne. It is mine by the word of the Lord. It's right there, just Oh, just on the other side of an understandable, reasonable sin. That's the issue. It's on just the other side of an understandable, reasonable sin. And wouldn't it be reasonable? My goodness, this guy is the one who is so hell-bent on killing me that he'll slaughter all the priests and all of their wives and all of their children the Lord probably would appreciate me taking him out. Those are the Lord's priests, after all. Israel certainly would appreciate it. They would love to have a king who actually is righteous and just and who actually does attend to the needs of the nation, who actually is a shepherd. Israel would probably appreciate it. And obviously the God who providentially controls all things and orders every event in all of life put him here on a silver platter in front of me, obviously to kill him, right? No, wrong. Because murdering the anointed ruling king is sin. Reasonable sin, maybe. Depending how you rationalize things in life. But it's sin, which means it's wicked which means it is not of the Lord. Which means it is Sauline, not divine. Which means it would put David right in Saul's shoes. He seeks a kingdom whose foundation is righteousness and justice. He seeks to be prince beneath a king who is righteous and just and holy and pure. And he cannot come to that with blood, sin on his hands.
As he crouches there in that cave, David sees all the blessings and joys that he and the people long for and yearn for and need and want and desire. And he sees a shortcut right there to it all. And bless God, by the grace of God, he also sees that it's the shortcut that leads to death. And he hears a hiss in the whisper in his ear that says, this is the moment. I wonder if he too heard in that all this I will give to you if you will just bow down to me. Because David turns with fire in his eyes and cuts them to pieces. Get behind me. I cannot come to the kingdom like that. That's what's going on in this chapter. As I've hinted, it connects us to somewhere else in the future. But before we go there, we have to see that's what's going on in your life every day. You live in that cave. Right with David, weighing out two different paths to something that is right and appropriate and good and promised to you and that you should have if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, understand something aside... If you're not a Christian, I'm talking to you about something that could be yours but isn't yet. Could be if you would surrender your life to Christ and trust His cross to pay for your sin. Only His cross to pay for your sin. Then this could be about you. It's right here. Take the offer. But Christian, there's something promised to you, won for you by Christ, right and appropriate And it will be. You can look down through time. I don't know how much time, but you can look down there and you can see that kingdom is coming. And it is right and appropriate and good. And it's full of everything that I desire and everything that I want. But that path is marked with tribulation and trouble and hardship. The kingdom kingdom is glory. The Bible talks about it in picturesque language and imagery in multiple places. And it describes it often as what is missing and what is present in abundance. There is a glorious inheritance won for you, kept for you in heaven. It is a place there in heaven where there is lacking no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death and no more pain and no more struggle and no more loss and emptiness and loneliness. And in abundance there is light and rest and joy. And all of that is because the one who is in his being the antithesis of emptiness and meaninglessness and loss and in his being the epitome of joy and rest and peace is himself front and center the light that fills the whole place communing with you glorious the kingdom what's it like well the imagery of revelation says it's like Living in a city that's always at peace, always in light, without any chaos, and a river that runs through it that brings life and health and healing to the nations. (laughs) 
It's been won for you. It is coming. And everything in you longs for it. Even if you don't consciously, and even if you're not a Christian, and you don't consciously connect this angst, this fear, this loss, this longing, this hope is for that. Even if you don't consciously connect it, it's there in every wrinkle of every day. Sometimes you just call it, I want to feel good. You want rest and an end of struggle and a body that works. That's what the kingdom's like. Sometimes you, you want a relationship with someone who understands you and loves you. That's what the kingdom's like. God the Father communing with you and God the Son, filling all of God's people who have a relationship with you all and who love you all and who know you all. Every moment, something in you calls out for that and sees it down the path through tribulation and trouble. That's what life is. It's been actually promised to you just as well. Jesus said, in this world you're going to have a lot of trouble. Paul taught the church, it is necessary that we enter the kingdom through tribulation. All the time. All the time. So as much as we need to to look at the kingdom and to think about it and to revel in it and rejoice that it's been promised and won for us, we also need to be just as real that between here and there is trouble. Some of it unique to us who are Christians because you are a Christian. But a lot of it just due to the fact that you are a person and this world is fallen in sin. I know that some here... I. I mention the word tribulation. I talk about the road being marked with tribulation. And, and your response is, is a very quick, very easy, duh, you don't know the half of it. Because that's, that's where you are right now, in the midst of tribulation, troubled, hard-pressed, downcast, hurting. And there are others of us that you theoretically don't disagree, but life is grand. You're, I mean... By the grace of God, you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I don't want to denigrate that. It is by the grace of God. If you are healthy, wealthy, and wise, bless God. Say thank you for it. But I want to maybe convince you that this isn't the kingdom. You have, you have a bit of it. It's broken in, but it's not the fullness. Every day we walk through life missing To you who are brokenhearted and hurting, I, I don't mean to, by anything that I say, minimize. Because in some ways, anything I say in two or three sentence, sentences minimizes. I know that. I, have, I can only say two or three sentences. But the reality is, We live in a world in which we are confined 
to decay. And people around us themselves also are confined to decay. And all of us are burdened with a sin nature. And the world, the creation itself, groans. Limited. Under a curse. It's heartbreaking. And in every moment of of experiencing that trouble, there is a great temptation to just do something that alleviates the hurt or the pain or the confusion, that ends the loneliness. There is so often to a hurting person whispered in the ear, here's the shortcut, here's how you get out of that at least for an hour, at least for a day. A little white lie at work that secures your status in the company chain of command. It's a little white lie. Secures you. To protect you from financial fear. A slight compromise in a dating situation. Protects you from loneliness. The comment that comes at you that's insulting. gaining back from you a comment of self-defense and retribution. Defend your honor. That happens every moment in every day. And I know it goes much deeper than that. If you look at spouses who abuse, you look at disease, crime, Kids who wander away. Parents who are just... And the ways that you're tempted to respond so as to alleviate the pain and the suffering, the tribulation and the hardship and get something that you know is right and good. There should be harmony. There should be rest. There should be somebody loving me. There should be contentment. There should be hope. Yes, there should be. And one day there will be. Do not take the shortcut and get it by sin. The world is troubled and your path is marked with tribulation. And God has a purpose in that for you and for Him. He has a purpose in that for you. Don't short, shortcut, sidestep, whatever the, the purpose by taking a sinful, different path to try to get what you think is right and good. God has a purpose in the trouble and the suffering for you that is on the way to the kingdom and actually does you kingdom good even now. This is complicated, but think about this. A purpose in the hardship even now that is God's good to you. It's important that we understand that Because often it's easy to hear what I'm saying and and think of it sort of like, well, life is really hard right now, but at least in the end, something good happens. He has a purpose in the hard right now. That is good. 
to you. The trouble, the affliction, is Him doing you kingdom good, the kingdom breaking in even now to your life. How is that? What happens in trouble and trial? Put it like this. All of the things that we were leaning on, all of the things in which we did find solace, are exposed and cut away. This is hard because that often hurts. It often hurts a lot. This is where, again, I say I do not mean to minimize what I'm, how I'm dealing with those who are actually in the middle of a hurting situation. But what happens when a marriage collapses into pain and fighting and war? What happens there? You find out what you were trusting in. And invariably, as a Christian who is a person, you were trusting in Christ, but you also were trusting in the circumstances around you that were working well. And God graciously, kindly takes that away, cuts it away, weans you from it. All cutting hurts. All cutting hurts. I look at my life and I see things that I want and expect and didn't realize that I wanted and expected them until I couldn't have them. And then I saw. I was trusting Christ, absolutely. I'm a Christian. I have been for a long time. I'm a Christian, absolutely. But I also see now in the thing that has been removed and in the angst and the frustration and the aimlessness, the the pain that I feel over that I realize, oh, something was there. And through the pain, it is not unpainful. But through the pain, God does good to show you this had your heart. Son, daughter, I am enough. Really, I am. Because I'm going to take this away and a month from now you'll still be alive. You'll still be okay. You will have found something new. That's a good gift. That is a painful gift. It is a good gift. That can be extended to all kinds of various tribulations. Point is, path is marked with tribulation on purpose by God's design. If you need a verse for that, write down 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll get the exact verse for you because I want, I want you to be able to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. I'll read it to you. Verse 8 We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us, there's purpose, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God had a purpose. God put affliction on Paul and his companions' path there to teach them something, to rely not on themselves. This despairing of life itself, so that they thought they were going to die, that was not comfortable. But God had a purpose in that. And can you see that it was good to teach us to rely not on ourselves, but on Him who raises the dead? That is good kingdom blessing coming from God along the path that leads to the fullness of the kingdom. And you would skip all of that if you say, well, if that's what missionary work is like, I'm out of this, says Paul and his companion. And they go off into comfort still relying on themselves. That would be hard. That would be sad. God has a purpose in the tribulation that He has ordained to mark the path that leads to the fullness of the kingdom. Don't miss that. Don't miss the good now. And don't walk away from the kingdom there by taking a shortcut that seems in the short run to bring you things you want. Rest, peace, security, fun, entertainment, pleasure, happiness. Seems to offer that in the short run, but that word comes with a hiss. It leads you to death in the end. The road to the kingdom leads through tribulation and there are no shortcuts. So we need to, as Christians, we need to walk this road bearing up under what comes at us now Hoping in what is coming to us in the future. How do we do that? Where we find it in here. And the text helps us again with that. This is the second observation. Because Christ has given us a just judge... We can walk on enduring evil and repaying it with good. We can walk on down this path of tribulation when afflicted to return good to it. That's what David does. I'm going to try to be a little brief here. In the middle of this passage, which is right at the very end of David's speech, he twice brings up two different places, God as judge. Saul testifies, was four times referencing good, you returned good to me for my evil, you are righteous. David testifies, I have not committed treason, I have not done wrong, I have not sinned. So we know who's right and who's wrong here. And he says to him, 
I will not take matters into my own hands and settle things. Instead, I will commit them to God as judge. He will judge between us. That's where he goes, right in the middle. And do you see, understand the logic and how it is that he can say, not my hand, this is the end of verse 12, but my hand shall not be against you. How can he say that? Because he says, comma, but I know somebody's hand who will be against you. And whose hand will be for me. That's how he can say, I'm going to step back from this and not raise my hand because I know one whose hand is upraised. I have one who is prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner on my side. And I know what he thinks of this. How about you, Saul? That's, that's how David stands there. He says... I will return good for your evil in trusting myself to Him who judges justly. Where's that from? It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. He doesn't actually say that in 1 Samuel. That's said of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. He returned good for evil. When reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. First Peter 2.23 We're watching David here, and we need to be like David, who entrusted himself to a judge. But as we're watching David here, what we're seeing is the same thing that Christ faced. He himself saw a kingdom promised to him. And just as much as the providence of God led David into a cave and brought along the shortcut, the Spirit, it says, led Jesus into the wilderness where after 40 days Satan came and said to him, everything you see I'll give to you. Bow down to me. It is right. You should have it. Are you not the Son of God, the Anointed One? Absolutely. The kingdom is yours. And here's how you can get it. Bypassing the cross. He offers him a shortcut to the thing that he himself knows he should have. And Jesus said, no. And walked on down the path of tribulation and walked on through the reviling and walked on and embraced the cross. How? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we have a model in David and we have a model in Christ, but more than just a model... Last thing you need to see here, more than just a model, we have power. First Peter, turn to First Peter. First Peter two twenty two. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Allah, David. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Then here's the verse I want you to see, verse 24. We have a model in Christ, a model in David, but we have power also. Look at verse 24. 
He Himself bore our sins, this is Jesus, in His body on the tree that we might be forgiven. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that we might be forgiven. I think we often want to complete the sentence that way. And clearly, and clearly, He bore our sins in His body that we might be forgiven. But the verse talks about something else that happened at the cross. So here's the context. He's talking about us following the model of Christ who did not revile when reviled, did not threaten when suffered, but entrusted Himself to God who judges justly. Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Healed of what? Of the sin of reviling when reviled. Of the tendency to curse when cursed. Of the tendency of the problem, the brokenness, the fallenness in here that says, I want the shortcut. On the cross, He broke that bond. So you can die to sin and live to righteousness. There's power there for you, Christian. There is not only a model for what you should do, but there is power provided at the cross. You can, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, you can walk after Him. You can walk this path marked with all kinds of trouble and tribulation, believing and returning good when evil comes at you. He has freed you from bondage to sin. He has opened up to you a new life to walk in righteousness. He has acquired for you right standing before a just judge who takes care of everything. There is glory in that. He won for us a freedom. He has healed us. Kingdom blessing is promised to you. Kingdom blessing in fullness is coming to you. Kingdom blessing is coming to you in small parts from time to time, in situation after situation, here and now, all along the path. And Christian, you can walk that path in obedience to God, submission to Him, doing good to others, Because Christ has freed you from bondage to sin, lives inside of you and is changing you. You have a judge who takes care of it all, who sorts out all the problems in the end, and who lives inside of you now, in the person of Christ, who lives inside of you to move you to follow His decrees. There is good news in that. So I plead with you to bless the name of God and to rejoice in what He has won for you that is coming and to not take a shortcut of sin to avoid the trouble.
May God do that work in us as a church and in you as a person. Let me pray for that. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. I myself, as I'm talking about this, I I sense the, the loose ends here. Tie them up, please. Tie them up in the minds of your people. Thank you that you have broken the power of sin over us. Thank you that you do good to us even in tribulation. Thank you that you have promised by your hand to bring to us the fullness of the kingdom blessings that are promised. So work into your people, please. A dependence on you. Trust in you that will not turn to sin to alleviate the hardship. Grow in your people hope, please. We need hope to see that you are good and that you are doing good to us. We need hope to to bear through the, the pain of the weaning. So would you please, Lord, grow in your people hope. Grow in us contentment. Contentment with what you have provided for us now, here, this day, in this life. Make us thankful for what is good, obviously in our eyes, and for what seems bad, but which you will use for good. Help us to rejoice in all things, and again, to rejoice. To count it all joy when we face trouble of any sort. To rejoice in You though we do not see You and to love You and to, to praise You with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Lord, help us to rejoice. And bring the kingdom soon, we pray. Thank You for Your sure promise and for Your coming kingdom. Would you do your will here on earth as it is in heaven? Would you protect us from temptation and from the attack of the evil one and carry us safely home? It's my prayer for us, your your church here, Lord, that we would be your church under your hand. So do your work in us, please. I pray this in the name of Christ who went before us, endured the cross and scorned its shame that He might forgive us and might free us to say no to sin and yes to You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Go in peace. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah. 
84121.